Well, church family, I hope you are encouraged and blessed already this morning through the songs, the truth we've proclaimed to each other in song, and then, of course, of seeing this demonstration of uh, faith in Christ through baptism. I hope, church family, that you will pray that God would let us see the joy of that again and again and again, of sinners who have repented, believed, and then publicly professing that faith in Christ. Well, take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Today we're going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago at the end of Philippians 1. And if you're anything like me, you probably have a hard time remembering what you did two days ago, let alone two weeks ago. So let me help us remember a bit of where we were a couple of weeks ago in Philippians. Two weeks ago, I reminded us of this church's mission statement. The purpose of Highlands Baptist Church is to display God's glory by making disciples through the gospel of grace. If you're a church member or a regular attender, you know this church family is setting out to accomplish this mission through a variety of strategies, what we do here together on Sunday morning and equipping us to be salt and light in our communities as we scatter through the week when we're not gathered here on Sunday. You also are aware that in a few months' time, our lead pastor will be transitioning into an exciting new missionary training endeavor. And your elder team is diligently at work uh, and prayerfully at work looking for a pastoral candidate for the church family to consider, and then God willing to affirm by vote. There's been many behind-the-scenes hours that are spent by your elder team in pursuit of this. Um, if you're wondering you know, what's happening, here's just a quick update for you. Uh, there's been many discussions together as an elder team, as well as much time spent individually by the elders, researching, studying potential candidates that the Lord brings across our path. Please continue to pray. I cannot emphasize, I cannot overemphasize how important it is that the, that the church of God be praying in and through this. It is one of the ways we display God's glory, our praying. Uh, as we pray, as we trust in God, as we depend upon him for his provision, it's one of the ways that we show that God is the one who ultimately is who we look to to provide for our needs. We honor God as we trust him with our needs. So church family, I want to ask you to keep and encourage you to keep um, active in your prayers. But while this search for our next lead pastor is happening, we have not lost our purpose or our mission as a church family. We are not in a sort of in-between time where our mission and our purpose are kind of uncertain or put on hold, as if we're just kind of waiting for part of what God is doing. We have an exciting and deeply meaningful purpose that we as a church family get to joyfully and faithfully pursue together no matter what might be going on around unity is based on gospel doctrine. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't know if you caught in there the way that Paul continues to repeat and emphasize this call to Christian unity. The phrases that Paul uses there in verse 1 are kind of piled up. They're stacked together for effect. He's trying to persuade these Christians that they must live with unity. And one of the troubles that we have of understanding the opening lines of chapter 2 is because of the word if that's there in that text. When we use the word if, we often use it to communicate something that is uncertain. For instance, we might say that if it rains tomorrow, we'll need a raincoat. To our ears, the word if means that we're not certain that it might rain. It might, but it might not. So if it does, then we'll need a raincoat. When Paul is writing here in chapter 2, verse 1, and he is not writing as if something is uncertain. This third class condition that he's using in the Greek language is really kind of an artistic way of, of writing the word since. So you could reread verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 with the idea of this. Since there is encouragement in Christ, and since there is comfort from love, since we have participation in the Spirit, and since we have affection and sympathy, then he goes on, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So what Paul is doing here is he is urging his readers the necessity for unity. And in verse 1, he's persuading them to pursue it. And what he's doing is he's giving his readers the raw materials of Christian unity. Of what is Christian unity built with? How do we achieve Christian unity? What, what are the raw materials that make up Christian unity? That's what he's giving us here in chapter 2, verse 1. By the way, we live in a time where disagreement seems to thrive. It seems to be intensifying. The conflict and the lack of the ability to have reasoned conversation and civil discourse about disagreement, it seems to be heightened even more and more so that it's a lost art. And if you're not convinced about that, Read the comment section on anything online, okay? You'll go to an innocuous, like, next-door post about somebody asking for how to, how to water plants, and you will be shocked, maybe not shocked, because now it's just kind of proverbial. You'll be, but it's amazing how quickly the vitriol starts to ramp up where people are, are sending missiles, verbal missiles at each other because they disagree over innocuous things like how to take care of houseplants. Arguments about simple things escalate and explode and it's just, as a society, we have lost the, idea, the lost understanding of how to have conversation and carry on in a shared purpose and mission, even with some of those disagreements about minor matters. Christian unity is essential. And by the way, we are creatures of our culture. And we can get carried away in the same spirit and flow of our culture and bring that into church. And then we can start to put Christian unity and threaten it ourselves. Christian unity is essential. It's one of the ways that we stand against opposition to the gospel. It's one of the ways that we strive together for the sake of the gospel. And the unity that God calls us to and gives to us is an out-of-this-world kind of unity. So, and then, and for instance, if you're not a Christian, as we're talking about unity here in this church, we're talking about something that you cannot achieve with the building blocks that you have. You can take the best rhetoric, the best skills, the best strategies, the best kind of HR resources that you might try to deploy in your setting, but Christians have something that puts us head and shoulders above what the world can try to offer for unity, and it's because of the raw materials that we have of gospel doctrine. That's what Paul is pointing his readers to. They're going to build unity, not with some sort of slogan or phrases or pitch phrases or some sort of HR department strategy sessions. 
They're going to build unity with gospel doctrine. That's what he's putting their minds towards. Look at it with me here. Chapter 2, verse 1. The encouragement in Christ. This is the first raw material of Christian unity. Encouragement in Christ. Paul is reminding his readers that they share a common encouragement that is rooted and grounded in their union with Christ. It's something we shared this morning already as we sang about Christ, as we celebrated the profession of faith in Christ when Audrey was, was baptized. He is reminding them that they share this encouragement in Christ. Paul wrote about the same thing when he taught the church in Corinth. It's recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. There is this comfort that Christians share in Christ that is unique. It sets us apart. It is why Christians in persecuted nations can look at each other and be drawn together with unity that defies the opposition without because their unity is rooted in the gospel of Christ. A comfort that they share, this, this out-of-this-world comfort that is theirs in Christ. For a Christian, our union in Christ is a source of comfort. It helps us face opposition in conflict. It puts our hearts with a more firm gaze upon the hope and the eternal inheritance that is promised to us in Christ. Why should Christians be united and live, with peace, and live in peace with each other? Because we are all in Christ and find comfort in Him. The second source of Christian unity, or the second raw material of building Christian unity, is what he points to next, comfort from love. And I believe what Paul is reminding his readers of is the love of God, that the, the God the Father that has been poured out upon us in Christ. Paul writes about it and uses those same kind of terms in Romans chapter 5 when he says this, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Or he writes it to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 2 and he says it this way, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Again, the picture of baptism coming up out of the water, alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul is reminding his readers that they share a common bond as a people who have been transformed by God's love. Transformed. God's love provides Christians an unshakable comfort, something that Christians need when they're faced with intense persecution for their faith. This is why, Rome, why, why Paul could write with such dramatic language in Romans chapter 8. Many of you have heard this passage before. The, the Apostle Paul asks the Christians there in Rome, okay? It would have been a difficult time to live in Rome. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And by the way, the people he was writing to faced those very things. It was not theoretical. It was not a what if. They had been going through this. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul's usage of that, the comfort of love in Philippians 2. What about this love? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, Christian unity is essential. Paul knows that it's threatened in the church in Philippi. And so he's pointing their minds to the raw material that they have to build Christian unity and it's gospel doctrine. They share, they receive the love of God. He wants his readers to understand that they can pursue their shared mission 
against the opposition without and even with even handling the opposition that they face within over disagreement through the comfort of God's love. Here's a question. Do you? Is that gospel doctrine fuel and furnish your pursuit of Christian unity in this flock? Well, the third raw material, he says, is from the Spirit. It is this participation in the Spirit, verse 1. Just as they've received the love of God, so they also share in the Spirit of God. And I just quoted a passage from Romans 5 that talked about God's love being poured out upon us. And I'm going to read that passage again. And I want you to notice how Paul is highlighting the love of God being poured out, but it's being done by means of or through the agency of the Spirit of God. Romans 5, 5 again, it says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit is what unites God's people together. Again, this is why if you're not a Christian, Christians have a leg up on all non-Christians about unity, about true unity because of this kind of gospel doctrine. We have the Spirit of God. And you're like, well, that sounds really science fiction-y and kind of ooey-gooey and mystical. In a way, it is. God's Spirit has, has poured out God's love within us. We, as Christians, have the Spirit of God within us. And it has a strong binding ability to it. I was trying to think of some cool, like, molecular you know, illustration about how scientists do crazy things in labs and how molecules bind together, but it's too brainy. It would have been taking me too long to like explain it to myself, let alone to all of us. But you understand the kind of idea about that? Like scientists doing things to molecules and sudden like magnets and they bind together. The Spirit of God should be having that effect within us as Christians. And by the way, do you notice that there's this Trinitarian view that Paul has? This focus on Christ, this comfort in Christ, this mindset of God's love and then this turn to the Spirit of God, Paul is reminding Christians who they are, that they have a relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit, and that binds them together in this unshakable unity that the world tries to shatter but cannot. Encouragement in Christ, the love of God, this Trinitarian reminder. For Paul, hearing of their Christian unity is what would fill up his joy. Look at verse 2. Complete my joy. Fill it up, people. Complete my joy. How, Paul? By breaking you out of prison? By sending you a cake with a file baked into it so you can break yourself out? I know we're being silly. But I find it interesting that Paul is sharing with these Christians, and he's telling the truth here, folks, that what would fill up his joy is that he would hear that they are living in Christian unity. And it's it's, it, he, he writes it almost in obnoxious ways. He's repeating himself almost obnoxiously so they get it by effect. Complete my joy. How, Paul? By being of the same mind. What do you mean? Having the same love. Tell us more, Paul. Being in full accord of one mind. All right, Paul, we get it. It's like they can't, they can't pass this by. Christian unity is not just kind of a, like the multivitamin. Kind of take it to kind of help out a little bit here and there. You know, it makes your joints a little less icky, but you can overall still get the job done. No, Paul is writing about Christian unity as if it's essential for their mission as a church. The advance of the gospel is at stake here. Encouragement in Christ. The love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit. Well, Paul explains what this Christian unity is by piling up those phrases, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. By the way, the word full accord there, in the Greek is actually the idea of being one-souled. I know you could probably preach a whole sermon on what that means, right? But this is not just kind of external pretend, yeah, we just kind of pretend all get along. 
What does all this mean? In fact, some of you might be thinking, this sounds rather monolithic, rather boring, kind of like we're all going to become like Stepford Christians, kind of all robotically aligned in every fine area of agreement. So, and is that the kind of unity that, that Paul, is at, Paul is expecting of Christians? No, it is not. Something much better than that. What is Paul driving at? Well, let's ask the text this question. You see in verse 2, when he says, uh, have the same mind, well, the same mind about what, Paul? He keeps going, have the same love. So our question of the text then would be, the same love for what? He wants them to be in full accord and of one mind. Okay, full accord about what? And I believe the answer to that is found in what he's already written about up to this point and then what he's going to go to next to illustrate what he's calling them to be unified about. In verses 6 through 11, Paul wants them to have the same mind about Christ, the same love for Christ, to be in full accord about Christ. Which, by the way, all along in this, in this, in this letter, if you had been reading it in one setting like it normally would have been read, Paul is all about Christ. I mean, he says, whether I live, it's Christ. Whether I die, it's Christ. What I want to be happening, what the gospel preached is Christ. Whether I preach it, I'm just glad Christ is being preached, even if it's people preaching it out of, out of, uh, out of conceit or selfish ambition. I'm glad that Christ is preached. Folks, you need to be focused upon what you have in Christ so you can be unified. You have the comfort in Christ. You have God's love poured out to you through Christ. You have the Spirit who's given it to you in Christ. By the way, I want you to have the same mind, the same love, be in full accord about what? Well, let me tell you in verse 5, let this mind be in, you have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in, here it is again, Christ Jesus. Paul wants them to have the same love for each other that they have received from Christ. He wants them to treat each other the same way they have been treated by Jesus. He wants them to be of one accord and one soul about the advance of the gospel of Jesus. So remember, for Paul, whether he lived or died, it was all about Christ, and he wants his readers to share in that same unity and that, share, that same shared purpose. Do you? On what might your unity with others in this church family center upon? Is there something other than the person and work of Christ? Are there other raw materials you're trying to build unity with in this church family? Friends, the primary materials that we as Christians have been given to build unity is gospel doctrine. That's where Paul points his readers. That's where we must go. The only unity that will stand up to opposition and to suffering and to the disappointments and the frustrations of living gospel-shaped lives in this world is a Christ-centered, gospel-doctrine kind of unity. For instance, if our unity is transactional, meaning you do this for me, so therefore I'm going to do this for you, and therefore we get along, that's not Christ. If our unity is performance-driven, for instance, look at what we did together, we don't have unity in Christ. If our unity is, is issue-driven, for instance, look at, we all disapprove of the same stuff, it's not Christ. If our unity is preference-driven, for instance, hey, we all like the same stuff, it's not Christ. If our unity is based on feelings, for instance, I like the way those people make me feel, I like the way you make me feel. It's not Christ. Friends, Christian unity is, gospel, is built on gospel doctrine. Now, I'm not saying that there's things that we don't, we don't disapprove of in the same way or approve of or we like to feel. I mean, I'm not saying that those are evil in and of themselves. They're not sufficient raw materials to build unity that will last 
to how the gospel advance into areas where there is opposition against it. And by the way, that's the world we live in. It's everywhere. Paul goes on to clarify more about what, it looks, what, what Christian unity looks like by telling us what it isn't. Look at verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is just Paul turning the phrases around. He's drilling again more and more at Christian unity by showing what it isn't. Christian unity, selfish ambition is the opposite of Christian unity. Conceit, it's not a word that we use often. You probably have to look that up in a dictionary. It simply means excessive pride. Therefore, we understand that pride is the opposite of Christian unity. Because pride demands its own way, doesn't it? Selfish ambition, pride exalts itself over and at the expense of others. It drives for its own self. And Paul knows that pride is a deadly threat to Christian unity, so he reminds us of the need for humility. In other words, Christian unity thrives where Christian humility thrives. Humility would have been a very difficult concept for his original readers to accept. Greco-Roman society looked down upon the notion of pride in a philosophical way, a high-minded way, because they understood humility. Did I say, did I say look down on pride? They looked down on humility because they would consider humility being this kind of servile expression of weakness. And Greco-Roman society would have said, you need to have strength and, and go out and be a champion, which, by the way, kind of sounds a lot like our Western American culture, right? This bootstrap mentality. For instance, you can kind of hear some of this idea that kind of seeps into this fake Christianity when Christians say, God helps those who help themselves, right? Kind of this bootstrap Christianity idea, friends. We are told that God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And Paul is reminding his Christ, the Christians, his readers here, of how deadly pride, selfish ambition, conceit is, how it threatens Christian unity, which is what they need most. Pride can show up in different ways, by the way. There can be the excessive pride, you know, the person who is just kind of full of themselves in every way, kind of, I'm this, I'm better, you know, the person who always has a better story to share than the other one. I can always one-up them, always better. But pride can, be in, and it can appear in a self-deprecating way as well. This thinking, not thinking poorly about oneself. Oh, I'm awful, I'm horrible, I'm terrible, I'm never good enough. That's just a self-absorbed and the others an upside-down way. That's another form of pride. And friends, do you understand how the gospel uniquely, uniquely solves both problems? You think you're worse, you think you're, you're awful, horrible, no good, no, nothing can save you. Well, friends, the gospel reaches right into that mess and delivers you. And if you think that you're kind of, hey, man, look at God should be impressed with me. I mean, if God is going to make new humanity, I'm going to be like the mold for that. If you're proud like that, I know that's dramatic. Well, friends, the gospel saves you from that too because you've been given a suffering Savior who died to save you from the, the absurdity that you could ever impress God. Christian unity is marked by a humility of spirit that does not look down on oneself and does not look down on others, but, but, but looks at the interests of others because you are focused upon Christ. Do you? What kind of church family would be created if we all took these words to heart and lived them by the power of God's Spirit? Imagine that. I think we have a taste of that. I do. Praise God. Because I believe that this church family is filled with so many who are seeking to live this way. What a blessing. But friends, I think we can all grow in this too, can't we? 
of having a renewed perspective and a focus upon Christ and who He is and what we have in Him that unites us together. And to conclude, I just simply want to point our attention to where Paul points his readers. In verse 5 and following, he points them, he encourages them. I wonder if they were overwhelmed with the ability to live up to this text. Because they do have problems. Later on, he calls out a couple of ladies who actually have some, in, in chapter 4, he says, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He's asking for two specific individuals. Just imagine, right? Your name is being described in the scripture in the church for ages on, hearing about you as a case in point of having a problem with church unity. It's there in the church, too. He's writing to Christians that might have been thinking, have you talked to Judea? Have you talked to Syntyche? There's no way they're going to agree. But he writes them in verses 5 and following, I think, to kind of be the slam dunk persuasion that this is possible. This is what God plans for us. The raw materials that God has given us in gospel doctrine are sufficient and will overcome the issues and the obstacles of unity. Where does he point his readers? He points his readers to Christ. No surprise, right? Have this mind among yourselves. How, Paul? Which is yours in Christ Jesus. So how does that happen? How do we get this mindset? Well, then what he does is he just rehearses the glories of the gospel of Jesus. And by the way, verses 6 and on are, are actually a poetic form. It's believed by scholars that Paul is writing a, in, a, an early Christian hymn. Whether it's attributed to him as the original author, I'm not sure. Scholars aren't sure. There's debate upon that, but what is happening is he's writing a hymn. We sing songs together. You, you can say gospel doctrine. You can recite gospel doctrine because of songs. Some of you would have a hard time reciting a passage out of Romans, but you can say the doctrine of Romans through song. And that's what Paul is giving them. He's giving them a, a hymn about Christ to encourage them that they have the raw materials they need for Christian unity. I believe it's meant to inspire us by Christ's example. This is an ethical example. And I believe he also writes to remind us of who we are in Christ. It's a doctrinal reminder. Verse 6. What do we know about Christ? Well, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. What kind of death? Even death on a cross, which would have been a shameful, horrific death. The result, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What threatens unity in your life, and how does this hymn of Christ solve that problem? Look at it. Do you think you are above others? Do you think others are that owe you? You shouldn't have to stoop to serving them. How dare you be a greeter? How dare you work in nursery? Oh, can't imagine putting together treats on a Sunday morning. I know I'm being dramatic. Friends, what spirit of pride or lack of unity might lurk within our hearts that just a fresh glimpse of Christ in this hymn would shatter and remove and melt away? 
Look at verse 6. Jesus is God. And He didn't hold on to the prestige of that reality. Instead, He emptied Himself of those rights and privileges and became a servant. He humbled Himself to death, even shameful death. And what is your objection to your Christian brother or sister again? Why do you refuse to get along and work together in the shared purpose of advancing the gospel? The Christian community shares a unity in having a Savior like this. That's, again, if you're not a Christian, that's why the text is unapologetic. Christians have a leg up on building unity. The raw materials of Christian unity are gospel doctrine. This world does not have anything that can touch that. Do you believe that? This is what unites us. This changes how we look at each other. Instead of seeing the areas that we disagree with as a threat to our personhood, as a threat to our identity, which, by the way, that's the spirit of our age, this elevation of the psychological self so that any idea that's, that threatens our, our sense of, of psychological self, we consider like, like physical harm. And so we're looking for safe places. You can bring that spirit right into church and it destroys Christian unity. But friends, when we look at each other through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we have God's love poured out upon us, we participate in the Spirit of God, we share comfort in Christ, and we share a shared mission of advancing the Gospel, those lesser things don't seem to matter anymore. Who we are in Jesus and what we've been given in Jesus frees us up to live and love others with a shared purpose and mission that is centered on the advance of the Gospel of Christ. The only way we will accomplish our mission as a church family to display God's glory by making disciples through the gospel of grace is by being aware of what God has given us to build Christian unity. And wherever blocks in that, in that unity get knocked out, what we rebuild with are the raw materials that God has given us in its gospel doctrine. Friends, this is why the elders of Highlands Baptist Church are obnoxious about being committed to proclaiming the gospel. We want the members of this church, we want guests of this church to be hearing the gospel again and again and again. We cannot outgrow it. It's what we build with. It's what binds us together. It's what comforts us when we're damaged. It's what heals us when we hurt each other. It's what strengthens us to forgive each other. It helps us suffer along with each other and be kind to one another and tender-hearted. Where does all that come from? The gospel. You have this mind in Christ Jesus. I'll ask our music team to come up. And as they prepare to lead us in our hymn of response, Christians, a church family that lives this kind of unity, let me say it this way, our world needs to see this kind of unity. Our world is longing to see this kind of unity. They need to see it because as they see unity that is out of this world, they're seeing glimpses of the glory of Christ. It's one of the ways that the message that we share in our lives and that we share in our words is, co- is a compelling witness of the validity of the gospel. It's transformed us. We live in an age that is full and fraught with conflict and tension and disagreement. And then the Christian church is this unusual organism in the middle of all that mess that celebrates and loves and works for each other's growth in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead of seeing weakness in each other and swooping in to exploit it for personal gain, that's our world. Christians swoop in with God's grace and say, hey, how can I bear this burden and help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus? It defies the imaginations of our unbelieving counterparts. Friends, let's display the glory of God through Christian unity.
Let's advance the gospel of Jesus through Christian unity. How might God be calling you to build unity here? Let's pray.